The following production is part of the We Be Geeks Podcast Collective. This podcast is part of the Red 5 Network. For more Red 5 Network podcasts, visit red5network.com. Produced with podcasting gear from Tascam. Trust your audio to Tascam. Sound thinking. Nerds, discover your geeky haven with Twink.com. We've been delivering you the best products and all things pop culture for more than 20 years. Enjoy a wide selection of officially licensed merch from your favorite fandoms. We carry top brands from Disney, Funko, Marvel, and DC, Star Wars, Harry Potter, and much, much more. We also offer an array of exclusives that you won't find anywhere else. With all these collectible goods, you're definitely going to need a bigger boat. Use code WINGEEKS15 for 15% off your order. Crisis for the geek kind. Top geek officials admit they underestimated the hipster's defense capability. Join the revolution and save the galaxy. Geeks from all over the globe are joining up to fight for the future. They're doing their part. Are you? Want to know more? Join Weeby Geeks and the Geek Revolution and save the world. Service guarantees citizenship. Want to know more? Do not attempt to adjust your device. This is Extreme Freedom Audio Bulletin. It cannot be traced, it cannot be stopped, and it is the only free voice left in the Geek Revolution. And welcome to another episode of Weeby Geeks. I'm flying solo at the moment. Hopefully Derek joins me in progress. But I'm, I'm flying solo, but I'm not flying solo. I I may have to be institutionalized for this. Or maybe we just interview some of the cast and crew from the movie The Institute. And we've got Artemis, John, Hamza, and Chelsea all from The Institute. How are you guys doing? Hey. Great. Glad to be here. We're great. And hopefully I didn't butcher your name, Hamza. That's perfect, actually. I've had much worse, as you can imagine. I, I can't imagine. <laughs> <laughs> This is why I'm not doing last names oh. <laughs> tonight. <laughs> um, tell, oh, I'm just going to throw this out there. Someone tell us a little bit about the Institute. Artemis, do you want to do it? Uh, the Institute is a film that is about a couple that is having a difficult try- time trying to conceive a child. So they get this last minute attempt at, at trying to have a baby and conceive, which is something that almost that pretty much all company, couples for the most part seem to want. And they get contacted by a world-renowned doctor, Dr. Lands. They get the opportunity to come to his institute where he's going to attempt to make them fertile and help them conceive to have a baby. But when they get there, things are great. But at the same time, it's a little different. And let's just say some shenanigans begin to ensue. I I, I could see shenanigans do ensue. I I will agree with that. Um, I'm going to say the only person who does not have a acting part in this is Chelsea. Nope. No, actually, um, I make a cameo as the cook in a couple of the scenes. Okay. (laughs) We had to, you know, shoot this over COVID. So everybody was pulled in. Artemis. You know, even yeah. my kid. We, it, was, we, it was part of our um, kind of like our safety plan, as yeah. well as our indie plan. <laughs> right. 
so you said you, you filmed this over COVID. Um, what type of protocols did you have to go through? Uh, I mean, were they kind of loose protocols, fairly strict protocols? Um, I think we were pretty strict. You know, we basically had tested everybody, you know, before they came on. Um, we let them know, you know, kind of like that we we wanted them to test themselves. And we, you know, we tested everybody and we kept everybody in like a bubble. So the people that were shooting upstate, we had them in, all in like a summer camp, kind of secluded from anyone else but each other. And then, you know, there'd be like daily temperature checks and all those uh, basic protocols. Um, everybody wore masks on the crew side. Um, and, you know, we tried to shoot outdoors, you know, as much as possible. So luckily, thank goodness, nobody got sick on our uh, on our set. That's good to hear. Yeah. And we also did a very good job at maintaining the social distancing from the crafts and the crew were in between at the actual takes. So I think that was something that we actually did well on. And just to add to what Hamza said, we also made sure that everyone was tested within three days of coming out to the actual shoot. Excellent. Yeah. So where did, where did the idea for the film come from? Um, basically from trying to have a child, you know, uh, thinking of the issues one might have my friends, um, family members, you know, people that I knew that had had difficulty and kind of imagining if I did, or if I was going to have difficulties and just kind of thinking about that primal sort of like masculation, if you will, you know, I think it's worse for women, but I can't say I can speak to, you know, what women go through in this process of, you know, trying to conceive and maybe having issues or, or even succeeding. Right. I can't speak to it, but that was where the basic idea came from. And then just kind of discussing it with, with Chelsea, you know, my wife, I'm producing partner, um, other people that have had issues, uh, you know, women um, to vet the script, to kind of discuss it and, and really see if I could make it a, a somewhat balanced as much as possible. But that was where the idea came from. You know, what would people do for this, especially if they had issues? And then when you see how much people would do for something that just for me automatically brings about what would people um, also do when people are so desperate? You know, the dichotomy of power, this imbalance that I find always runs through my work. Okay. It's just like the it's the ideology of how far would you go for something that you want? And in this case, how far would you go for your own child? Yeah, I can relate to that because yeah. I, I know that was the idea. You know? I know we saw a specialist when we were trying to have our kid because my wife would, might have had um, another issue that would have prevented the potential pregnancy. Um, yeah, it's scary. And after two months in, you know, she did become pregnant. But, you know, if they said, well, we want to try the, the fertility drugs where we're like, no, we'll go and adopt instead. So I kind of relate a little bit to the to the characters about um, to, uh, Danny and Myrna. Danny Marie. yeah, Danny and Marie um, about that option as well. Um, but thankfully, you know, y'all saw before show my daughter, she snuck up uh, on her knees because. She's in her bedtime attire and didn't want to be inappropriate on screen. But now that was 12 years ago. Can't believe almost 13. She'll be 13 like wow. this year. Um, wow. How how much in the movie do y'all want to spoil or talk about? Um, we I think we would try not to give away some of the okay. later parts, but okay. you know we can discuss the earlier. I mean, we have John Easterlin, you know, multi Grammy, multi Emmy award winning performer. So you know we may as well get like his experience, his you know. Thoughts on his part, and that—that's where I was going to eventually head to. Was ask about casting, how everyone got casted, and uh, you know, John, we'll start with you since you're you're the talkative one so far. <laughs> 
Well, um, uh, I think in part, uh, in large part, uh, coming into this uh, was through Chelsea, because uh, Chelsea and I had worked together uh, in The Phantom of the Opera on Broadway. Uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, I, I just can't say enough wonderful things about her. Uh, she is uh, a multifaceted, multi-talented, multi-organized uh, individual, artisan, and human being. Aww. And uh, that, uh, that she, when she saw my name uh, come across her desk for this production, um, because of our association from Phantom, uh, she trusted me enough to bring me into this production. I had never met her husband, but uh, from uh, and I, I only had uh, the meetings. We had uh, a table read, which was uh, uh, like on Zoom because of COVID. Uh, so I didn't meet Hamza until the day that we filmed. But uh, even via Zoom, I just felt an immediate connection with Hamza. He is uh, so warm and open and gracious and very clear about what he wants and what he is looking for. And so it made for uh, a very easy way to work with him and through Chelsea and with this uh, incredible cast and with the amazing uh, team, uh, the crew that was there. And um, as Artemis has, has pointed out, the incredible protocols that were in place, even for the brief time I was there, uh, I felt absolutely safe uh, uh, in being there, uh, but it was a privilege. I remember at the end of uh, the day where I shot, uh, they asked me if I wanted to say anything um, might be added, uh, you know, as a like on a B-roll. Uh, and so what I said to the camera was that I thanked um, Hamza and Chelsea and the team behind the Institute for having the courage to, you know, somebody has to, especially at that point, somebody had to make the first step to move forward uh, and begin to make art again, even in the middle of a pandemic. And that is what the people, the artisans, the, the crew, uh, the actors um, in, in the Institute did, is that they all took a very bold step, a very careful step, and they stepped forward with this story, a very important story to tell. And to have been asked to be a part of that through somebody that I hold very dear to me in a very dear part of my career is something very special. You know, as we look back, as we move forward, farther and farther forward through and hopefully in time away from the pandemic. When I look back on it, one of the things that will bring a smile, an odd word to use when we think about a pandemic, but yet a smile is to have been a part of the Institute, a part of people and artists and individuals believing and taking the courage to step forward with art once again. Thank you, John. You're such a pleasure to have on set. Yeah. It was it was it was a real dream. Yeah. And if I can comment on the casting, especially for John's character. Um, you know, when I when I knew John was interested, it was like, you know, it was just like, yeah, of course, because um, even on Phantom, you know, like he um, as an artist um, took the um, kind of like um, risk or like, you know, he was like had a willing spirit to even come to Phantom because his um, 
his realm originally, you know, he's a world-renowned opera singer. So, you know, even at Phantom, it was kind of like a leap. And then, you know, like to know that he was interested in like, you know, a film that that we were doing, you know, just like another like creative leap was, um, you know, like it was just like, uh, you know, of course, you know, like that's so cool. And I think it's so cool that um, in another way that you risked COVID, you know, you just, you just like to create and it's great to be around other people that will take these risks that will, you know, move outside their comfort zone and, you know, try something new and like really, really succeed, you know, in it. It was um, definitely a pleasure. Yeah. We were very honored. Yeah. Thank you, John. We were very honored that, you know, our little, our little micro budget indie, you know, John submitted and he wanted to do it. You know, I mean, he's, uh, I guess I'll say it again, multi Grammy, multi Emmy award winning um, performer. So for our humble project, you know, we were just uh, tickled and really grateful that he would, you know, come and like he said, help some, uh, some guys trying to make some art guys and girls. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. John, very thankful. Did, did you, have you found it hard going, making the transition from, from stage to the screen? Well, um, in that, um, it's, it's much simpler. It's much smaller. Uh, than how you are on on stage. Uh, opera is much bigger than than theater. Theater is smaller and more uh, believable. Uh, and then with film, because film is so immediate and so close, the camera is so close. Right. You don't. And this is something that Hamza uh, said to me. And it, uh, it he's so he. I'm, I know I said this a minute ago, but I have to stress it again. He uh, conveys so much in so few words. And one of the things he said was how you don't have to do much because the camera is right there. It ca- it captures the most minute detail. And that is actually a wonderful thing to have at your core, that you don't have to play to the fifth ring of a 5,000-seat opera house. You just go to <laughs> your heart and you go to the reality of what is happening in that moment. And you don't think about the camera, even though the camera is right in front of you, but you think about the reality of, of what you were in at that moment. And the, cap, the camera captures it Im- immediately because of the immediacy of the medium. And I have to, if I can just interject this, I have to thank Hamza and Chelsea for this because, and I didn't mention this to them when we were at the premiere, but I didn't know this was going to happen. This happened a month, a little over a month after uh, the Institute. Uh, but it it happened, I'm sure, because of having been a part of the Institute and because of what I learned from them. Uh, I was a part of the Gilded Age, which just uh, had its premiere on HBO Max. But again, <laughs> that simplicity of trusting and not overplaying um, that I learned from Hamza and from his team and from his cinematographer to just uh, very simple, very simple. I remember in, when we were filming, um, I imagine there might be some people that would be put off by this, but it was wonderful. He was almost as close as the camera was to me and um, almost whispering to me in that what he said was enormously, it's like as he spoke to me, 
as he spoke to me, it spoke to me, if you follow what I'm saying. Yeah. As he, as he said things to me, it went right through the fibers of my being and everything came out as it needed to on camera. It's very cool. Thank you. Pretty cool. Yeah, I didn't even really realize, you know, it's, it was so hectic. I, you know, I think you did a great job. I don't even, I can't say that I recall giving you too much notes. You know, you're being very gracious. I think you, you knew what you were doing. You were a consummate professional. You know, you like, it's funny, you know, they say, you know, the, the real, the real greats don't have an ego. Right. And it's so true. It's like the people that really give you the most problems, you know, on set or afterwards, you know, they're just this kind of like they're they're sort of <laughs> mediocre or middle of the road i have to say you know the real real greats they're super gracious they're super amazing and you know john is one of the greats exactly well, for you no no <laughs> that's awesome yeah, to hear you. hear all this amongst amongst you guys now artemis how how did your casting process go for the film <laughs> uh we we got the submissions and we went through and basically tried to find who we felt like would be the best fit for each of the characters that Hamza had written. I uh, I initially did the breakdown of the script. This is I want to say early 2019 was it? But early yeah, 2019 was I got day to- one. Yeah. Basically some of the I had drafts. the script. Yeah, go ahead, sorry. Yeah, yeah, some of the earlier drafts that you gave me. I was uh I, I was really digging it. So from there we're going through just you know doing the breakdown and trying to figure out which characters were gonna be the most impactful. Of course, you had our two leads and we had the Dr. Lance that we're gonna have to cast. And we knew we wanted to put someone in that role that would be able to grab the audience and be able to pull up performances that would be not only believable, but also we like between our two leads, we need two actors that would have chemistry. They need to look like a real couple, you know. And they need to look like two people who are actually trying to have a baby together, who look like their their marriage like kind of depends on it, just their happiness, you know? So when we were trying going through our casting process, we wanted to make sure we found people who were believable in those roles. And for the doctor, of course, we wanted someone who would be able to embody the creepiness without being over the top, you know? Yeah. I was going to say, it, it was the ending. I'm not going to give it away, but the ending definitely wasn't with the way the film goes it's like okay yes see a little bit of the creepiness with the doctor but a little new age as well but did not see the horror twist that came at the end exactly yes and i i love that what what (laughs) led to that decision to all of a sudden just swerve and hard left (laughs) <laughs> that hard left to Albuquerque. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah, I have to say, <laughs> I have to say that was my intention the whole time. You know, it, the whole concept of this, you know, like my whole, the whole point of this was to, you know, go in a direction that maybe, you know, you hadn't seen before or that hadn't quite been done. So, you know, um, I tried to give enough breadcrumbs, like, you know, for people to understand, I don't want to give anything away, you know, about the ending. Some people, you know, it might've been too jarring, you know, but I think the people that are like me, um, like you, obviously, Mike, and, you know, that want something a little uh, poppy, um, something, you know, kind of special, and I don't want to give it away. And everybody's going to be expecting something crazy to happen. It's not that crazy. No, (laughs) no. Nice. It's not that no, crazy. It is crazy. And it is one of those things that, just like you said, there were breadcrumbs sprinkled, but I love the way you masterfully did it where it wasn't telegraphed and it wasn't heavy handed at all. And then when it happens, it's like, whoa, 
Yeah. And it's just really cool. a nightmare, right? Oh, that's true. Yeah. That's true. Actually, the whole story started from like a literal nightmare of mine. I wouldn't, you know, not even like a, a vision of, yeah, I guess a nightmare, but I had a visual image. And so of like something kind of frightening that happened to me during this point, um, you know, when we're trying to, to have, uh, pardon? We need to hear the story. Thompson. Yeah, I didn't, uh, I hadn't, you're right, Chelsea. I didn't even think about that. I hadn't remembered, but yeah, the earlier drafts, I had this, this basically this thing happened. I don't want to give it away, but you know, I was, I was kind of traumatized by this vision. And so I just kind of started developing it and, and pulling these pieces together and kind of built it around this, this one, uh, this one moment. <laughs> I'm not giving away too much, Mike. I know. Oh no, 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 it's perfect. Perfect. I, if Derek was here, he would tell you, I would be the guy who would let it slip and spoil the moment. And, it, and I'm doing good not to right now. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and we appreciate I, you. This is my first time hearing about the dream. You know, I remember speaking about the concept and the creative process, but I didn't know that there was an actual dream that you had and the, the crux of the film got going from that dream. That's actually really cool. Yeah, I had forgotten. Yeah, yeah I, I had forgotten. That was actually, <laughs> I guess Chelsea was there from the very, very beginning, you know. Uh, 2018? 2018. <laughs> and then I started working on the script itself around 2019. And that's when Artemis came in. And he was, you know, one of the, the first, actually the first producer to start developing it with me. And we built it out from there. Yeah. So, John, with your character, uh, Dr. Kramer? Yes. How, tell us a little bit about Dr. Kramer and, and his role in the film. Well, he isn't present in the story for a long time, but I think he has a very, he has a pivotal point uh, within the story, um, especially with the couple, especially with the wife, because she's yeah. been through so he, he, much. He's the doctor they can't go back to. Yeah. Um, you know, she's been um, she's been so down, uh, beaten down through uh, tests and the, the IBF procedure. And she comes to him just hoping for one last hope. Um, and this is before the Institute, before all of this happens. But she comes to him hoping for, uh, just looking for a, a ray, a ray of hope, some bit of positivity. And he doesn't have the time of day for her, bottom line. He's too busy and he doesn't care. And he just wants her to get over it and move on. That's the bottom line. He's cold. He's indifferent. Um, I want to say he's probably a typical New York doctor, but that's probably being too broad, but he's just, he's, he doesn't care. He doesn't, he doesn't have the time for her. And, uh, as she, as he sees, uh, her not on the edge of tears, but certainly almost emotional that brings their brief, uh, telemeeting to an end. And so that's what sends her, you know, back to her husband, uh, even more despondent, uh, mm -hmm. that she doesn't want to try anything else. She doesn't want, and you know, he, he, we see him after this looking at things on the internet and, and she doesn't want any of this. She just, you know, it's no, we, I've already done enough. And, but the thing that's really pushed her to the limit has been Kramer's um, dismissal of her, you know, the, the showing absolutely no compassion, no understanding. So it may not be uh, a long time together, 
but it's um, it's the tip of it, it, not the tip of the iceberg, but it is the. Um, it's a fulcrum point. Yeah. Yes, yeah. she can't so, take it, she can't take any more beyond that. Yeah. And uh, eventually, that's what leads Danny to find the institute online. But up until that point, she wants nothing more because she's so despondent because of what Kramer has said to her and dismissed her. So Kramer is almost just as much the villain in this as Lanz is. I guess you could say in a way, because if he had if he had shown even a degree of uh, not even just hope, but uh, shown some sort of uh, direction to her, maybe not something he wants to do to help her, but referred her to somebody else or suggested something else. It would have perhaps kept them from going to the Institute, him finding the Institute, them going there, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Because of how um, dismissive he is, it's what propels the story in the direction where it's headed and where their lives are headed. Yeah. In all fairness to your character, John, um, you know, Dr. Kramer was an expert in his field and he didn't really think that, you know, there was any hope. So he was basically trying to tell them, you know, stop wasting your time with pie in the sky and deal with your actual problems. You know, and I think that was, uh, who's a realist, and John did a, a great job with that character. You know, there was uh, a, the expertise was imbued in you. And, and you know, it was a very pivotal point to launch the story. Right. We needed that expertise. We needed that warm delivery, I, that rich delivery to say, hey, I feel like I feel like that was the inciting incident. Well, actually, the conversation with him. Some people might think it was when Danny found the Lands Institute, but I actually think it was the conversation with Kramer. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's interesting, Artemis. I think certainly that that's what what ignites Danny to try. Exactly. That was that was what sent Danny on his quest to try to go to all these different lamps to come up with something. And like I said, I don't want to spoil anything or give it, but there's a scene where they go to Chinatown and all that happens because of the conversation with Kramer. So you definitely are the inciting incident in the, the film. Now, what, would Dr. Kramer been jealous of Dr. Land's jacket? <laughs> he wore the jacket is definitely a cool jacket. <laughs> I don't think so. No, they have different styles. <laughs> the, the two totally different doctors. It's awesome, right? <laughs> we love the jacket. That you know, it's definitely iconic. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, Dr. Kramer was, uh, you know, a real traditional expert doctor. Um, Dr. Lands, you know, is more of like a, a mix between, you know, one of those kind of West Coast CEOs and a, you know, new age um, healer. Um, he just happens to, you know, have be an overeducated type. And, you know, sometimes the the super intelligent, the super educated have a tendency to get lost in their own grandiosity. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I too may be, you know. But but it's interesting you mentioned the lab coat because, um, like, the inspiration for that was, you know, like, um, I wanted, like, that, like, like staunch white, like, traditional, um, you know, like, you know, like, authoritarian, like, doctor, you know, and, like, white, like, um, clinical, like, cleanliness, you know? Right. But it's also, like, the cut of it and the the narrow collar is, um, like, an Indian wedding jacket. <laughs> you yeah, know, it's very um, Eastern. It's, like it's a, a narrow South, cut. South Asian kind of, like, cut, like, like mm-hmm. a traditional, like, wedding um, jacket. So I thought that would be 
that would be good for him because he's like this man of the world and he, he is like a little like um, West Coast CEO, um, you know. So I thought that was like a good blend. And um, I think it did appear, I think it did give him like a very like iconic you know, look throughout. <laughs> it it, it kind of lended to the old, um, the old B movie mad scientist type look as well. Yeah. All of that. Yeah. All of that. <laughs> a little more refined for the next generation for our current time, you know, like the mad scientist, but you know, more like a little more, uh, worldly. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean like the archetype, I think will always be there, you know, um, no, no matter, you know, where we are in history. <laughs> yeah. What, what was some of the actions that we, we see with Dr. Lands throughout the film? Um, what's the motive behind it? I'd say Dr. Lands really feels like he's doing work that is trying to, he's trying to really do something that's going to benefit society and humanity in the long run. He really feels that way. And uh, he's willing to do basically anything that's necessary to achieve his goal. And he feel like I said, the best villains are the ones who feel like they're the good guys. Almost like Thanos in game, right? Thanos really felt like he was doing the whole entire universe a favor. And Dr. Lance really feels like he's doing humanity a favor. There's some dialogue that he has in the actual film where he speaks about the birth rates in the world actually being lower and coming down. And he's attempting to make sure that people who are bereft of life, that he's able to help them create lives and create babies. So like I said, the best villains think of the good guys. So that that's definitely up. See, I, I want to go more, but I don't want to ruin the ending. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, the, the, I that, think that, that's where the twist is with, with this. It's like, <laughs> well, we're not going to go a lot of the, the things that he puts people through, right. It's a, it's a power dynamic where he, has control over them and what does he make them do? You know, there's an ensemble cast as well, as you know, that uh, are there and each one has their own motivation. So the way that I look at it, everybody is in this for their own purposes. It just, the question is what purposes are those? Are those a positive purposes? Are they negative? You know, do the society feel that your motivation is valid or not? Do you feel your motivation is valid? I mean, you almost always do. So I, you know, I, I try to give mm-hmm. a bunch of different perspectives in there and let people, you know, kind of not like explain, but, you know, I let people show, let the cast and characters show why they're motivated, what's in it for them. And, you know, there's a whole wide range of, of motivations for the people. And I think that's the same way it is in real life. You have, you know, some people that want children just, you know, because of the, you know, fulfilling their family. You have some people who are like quite older. Um, I know that there's some women, you know, in like uh, India who are having kids, you know, into their 70s. Yeah. Wow. 80. Yeah. You know, it's very damaging to them and their body, but they just feel like it's it's what they need. Um, And, you know, there's all kinds of other things that people do uh, in this world. So, you know, it's it's not so cut and dry, not so black and white in many ways. And I hope the film, if not, you know, this is not a documentary. We're not, you know, trying to, to delve into yeah. all of that. It's an entertainment. First and foremost, the movie is supposed to be fun to watch. You go in, you know, my recommendation is, you know, uh, do whatever you want to to relax, you know, have a drink, have a tote, whatever. Yeah. Just enjoy yourself and just put it on, you know what I mean? And, and sit back. And I'm just, kind of I'm just, I have a question ride. for you. I have a question in regards to Dr. Lance. When you were writing that character, did you have to do any medical research or 
Like when you were developing the doctor's mindset, obviously, do you have a medical background? How did you like come up with him? Well, I mean, I was raised in a in a medical household, right? My father was a physician. My sister's wow, a physician. Okay. okay. Um, my cousins are physicians. You know, it's a very I wouldn't say common thing uh, to do, but it's relatively commonplace, like in my direct family. So um, I found it to be very sort of innate. I mean, I was reading medical books when I was, I guess, in a teenager, you know, like right at early high school, just researching some of the pharmacological substances that, um, you know, interested me. And also, um, actually, this is funny, John, because like the one of the inspirations for jo- Dr. Lands was another opera star, wasn't it? It was, right? <laughs> we, um, we knew this very... Um, eccentric. Eccentric. Um, very cool. Very cool, very, but very eccentric um, opera um, star that lived on the east side. And um, I think a little bit of <laughs> like him got in there too. Yeah. Yeah. Just knowing him personally and his mannerisms, um, he was uh, is European and the way he spoke was very, you know, stylish. large, stylized. <laughs> exactly. So, so now, now you've piqued John's interest. Yeah. <laughs> no. John's going, do I know this guy? Yeah, he <laughs> probably does. You might, you might. We he can. Does. We'll, we'll tell you does about. Does he him, speak uh, like Doctor Lance? Does he well, speak no. the way Doctor Lance does in like grandiose tones and stories well, and all he that? Was, uh, Danish, right? Yeah, yeah. He was, he was, he was European, and you know, he, he didn't have an. Originally, I had written him to have an accent because it was based off of him, but it turned out to it would it would have wow. been too artificial, right, for Mark to to you know talk and have an accent and and so on. So. We decided to cut the accent and just leave, you know, the the message. Yeah, but the, the way Mark delivers the lines almost throws a, a an accent, implied accent there. Maybe not European, yeah. but a a more um, aristocratic type sure. accent in there. Yep. Uh, yeah, yeah. Which, yeah. Well, which works with that character. Yeah. Thank you, Mike. Uh, he was he was a multilingual, right? So he's he spoke multiple languages. He's traveled around the world. You know, so he has picked up certain mannerisms and, you know, manners of speaking from his discussions with people from all different cultures. I would say to Dr. Lance reminded me a lot of, um, for comparison of a, of a mainstream character, almost like an evil Sheldon Cooper from Big Bang Theory. (laughs) I can see that kind of, you know, over-intellectualized, yeah. Sort of um, maybe a little buttoned up. Yeah. Well, I, I know they said with Sheldon, I mean, there were some autistic tendencies mm-hmm. in the character that was brought out. I didn't see that with Dr. Lance, and I, I don't think that would be something I would expect with Dr. Lance. But the, but the savantness mm-hmm. of comparing, the, you know, the savantness of Sheldon and then the savantness of Dr. Lance, um, it's like, okay, th- this is intriguing. <laughs> Yeah, I, I appreciated, you know, writing a character where, you know, he had a rich vocabulary and he was, you know, a student of the world and where you could talk to somebody. You know, I love speaking to people like that where, you know, you can talk to them about particle physics or you can speak to them about, you know, the the whales or environmental issues. You know, just they're, they have such a breadth of knowledge and then a certain specificity as well. You know, there's people that are world-class experts on very, you know, specific topics. And I love having some of them. I mean, I don't think I have the entire world, but, you know, having the few of those on speed dial that I do or meeting them at, you know, social engagements, you know, that's to me one of the richest parts 
of life is just, hey, here's a person who is a world-class expert in his field. I want to talk to you about this because I'm interested in basically everything. That's just one of my, you know, foibles. So if I meet somebody that's, you know, the top expert in whatever, like, you know, arms negotiation for, you know, nuclear weapons. And I'm just going to be like, okay, cool. So you were part of this one negotiation. Okay. Where, what happened there? What happened there? And, you know, I want to see what's in the room. And it's the same, you know, with the scientists like, oh, okay. Oh, you are a person that has patents in, you know, um, this one kind of manufacturing technique. Oh, that's great. Okay. I have a, a little curiosity about this one facet of that as well. So I just love those people. And once in a while, some of them are not nice. <laughs> <laughs> or they're, you know, they're, they have their own motivations, let me say, right? So I don't think I judge my characters, protagonists, antagonists, ensemble, whoever. They all have their own motivation. And I think their motivations are, are you know, worthy, right? They're, they're, they're real. They're, this is what you feel. This is what you want, right? Who am right. I to judge? Um, it just so happens that sometimes those motivations and your behaviors might not be in the best interest of others. So then yeah. you have drama. How's it? Can you speak on how difficult it was securing a budget for a feature film during a pandemic? Good question. Uh, well, um, it wasn't easy. <laughs> we had. <laughs> Can you elaborate on that? I'm pretty sure people want to hear about that. <laughs> well, Artemis, you helped out uh, financially. <laughs> I helped out financially. My family, I hit them up for money. You know, as an indie filmmaker, uh, you don't exactly have. Uh, you know, the budget of like you're talking about the Thanos and the, the Paramounts and all these people. So I hit up my family um, and friend and, you know, and then we went to our wider investment pool, qualified investors. Um, and because of the pandemic, you know, we had some shortfalls. Things kind of fell apart at the last minute. Um, we were very blessed to, um, you know, go to like one of our, our primary investor and kind of lay the situation out for him. And he basically came through for us. Um, the caveat being that we only had five or six weeks. Yeah. We, um, we had raised um, a good amount of the money. Um, you know, it, it, you're right, Artemis. I mean, you know this, like, personally, like we all do. Like, it is, you know, like the hardest part of, um, you know, getting a production together. And, um, you know, we had started with that prep work before COVID and we had planned to have like a live, um, you know, like meeting, you know, like pitch, like a live pitch. And we ended up having to do that over zoom, just like the table reads, just like, you know, um, a lot of the design meetings and everything else. Um, but, um, you know, again, like, uh, COVID complicated things Like people were feeling, um, like, you know, maybe this isn't the best investment with like the way the world was. Um, and we were going to tell our, um, executive producer, you know, like, we're going to delay this. We're going to, we just need a little more time for fundraising. And he said, you know, I'll make up the difference, but you have to proceed this summer. And <laughs> that's when it really like lit the fire under us. right? Himself. Yeah. So we had to um, get it all together. The logistics. We had the teams assembled. We knew who we wanted to work with, but you know, the delays, kind of uh, because of the budgetary constraints put us right up to like the edge of feasibility for, you know, like renting transport and housing and uh, you know, all that. And thankfully everything just kind of fell into place. It was kind of like our first play where we just put like, we put it out there to our friends and family. And I think, you know, this is a testament to you, John, and like our contacts in the entertainment world and friends like John stepped up and uh, came came through together. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs>
since we're talking being funded and whatnot, were you able to stay on budget? Did you go over budget, come in under budget? <laughs> under budget. Um, I don't think anybody's <laughs> ever come in under budget, but uh, we were able to stay. Technically, we were actually. Well, technically, initially, we were actually under budget. Okay, so we had to cut. So we had to do. We had to revise our budget when COVID happened. Uh, yeah. Cut the marketing budget and give everybody a thirty percent haircut. Right. So that was unfortunate, but just to get yeah, yeah, to get it done. So technically, because of that budget where we had cut the budget, we did by the end of production <laughs> and, uh, and you know and post production, we had stayed at that budget or like a, just a little bit under. But we did have to do another round for some final finishing things, you know, legal accounting, et cetera, that sort of built up because um, of complications that happened. Um, and this was our first feature. So uh, and for marketing. But it was um, easier to do that, we think, because we had a finished film in hand. And uh, and so we went right from there uh, with a finished film into distribution. And then with the distribution um, through Gravitas, we were, you know, we're right now in every cable channel, every satellite. You can buy DVDs, Blu-rays on like Amazon. You can you can rent us on Google. You can rent us on everywhere. Right. We're, we're, we're available everywhere. And so it was a lot easier to go back and get some additional funds for, you know, uh, our our basic marketing push. When it was less risky for yeah. investors. When it was less risky. Exactly. Yeah. So Derek has joined us now. Derek is in the building. <laughs> Sorry, I'm How's going, Derek. Good. Um, All good. Uh, there was a confusion with the, the scheduling, but I'm here, and I actually just finished watching the movies. Cool. Right. So Derek, um, since since I've pretty much held the ship down to this point, I'll let you ask some questions. <laughs> well, I don't know what you guys have already covered, but. Uh, <laughs> We've covered the inspiration, the budget, the production. Um, okay. We've discussed certain characters. And uh, what did you think, Derek? Yeah, what did you think? I enjoyed it. Fresh off the uh, Thank you. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, it was interesting. It was good. I liked it. It was very, uh, very. Um, it had this cool creepiness to it that I really enjoyed. Exactly. Uh, hey, Derek. Now, just so you know, we're, we're being spoiler free. Yeah, we've been going mm -hmm. non-spoiler. How do you feel yeah. about the the ending? Good, good. Why are you doing non-spoiler and talking about the end? We should talk about the whole journey. <laughs> <laughs> um. Uh. Well, without 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 spoiling anything. Um. All I can really say is I liked the end. I thought it was it was. Uh, it was very interesting. It was, um, again, I'm trying not to spoil anything, but, uh, <laughs> usually that's me doing that. It did not, it did not end the way I expected it to, which I really liked that. Um, it was a little, it was hard. <laughs> it was, it was a little, um, it was a great, left, it, it was a great left turn. All wrapped, yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't all wrapped up in, in, uh, big happy ending which i i really liked hey it's a love story that the movie's a love story right <laughs> it's a genre love story about two yes. two little kids trying to make it in this world and then they fall into a interesting little group situation two little kids named jack and diane also, uh, Hamza, can you speak about the visual effects in the actual film? Uh, your visual effects process. Can you talk about that? I was going to say, it I, seems like that's something that might have. I, I noticed, I did notice quite a bit of green screen used. Yeah, well, we 
did not want that noticeable. But um, <laughs> basically, you know, uh, we, you know, I have a, a background in, um, you know, some of my films where they, the story calls for things that, you know, don't necessarily aren't easily discoverable, right? In finding for locations, et cetera, right. et cetera, et cetera, build out. So um, we, I had written some locations that were, you know, uh, basically a, a, a little bit uh, larger than my budget, um, especially when they came down to, uh, you know, yeah. the, the COVID haircut we all had to, to take. So we, we pushed together um, you know, our, our set and, uh, you know, the green screen, the virtual, virtual environments, you know, we had our VFX guy, you know, it's difficult for our performers to, you know, none of them had ever worked in that kind of situation. This is, you know, those kind of environments are more like the Ballywick of $200 million movies, right? Not, you know, sort of Indies. Um, and, uh, but, you know, he brought down his VR headset and kind of gave the characters a view of what the general mock-ups would look like, right? What was the plan for the environments? What was the room? What was going to be going on there? And so I think it helped them. Um, so, so. And, uh, you know, there are two virtual environments and we, we basically um, use them for uh, the locations that we were not able to, to build or acquire. So, so kind of almost uh, inspired a little bit from Jungle Book with Favreau with what he did with VR. I would, I think that's being very kind, but um, yeah, yeah, we, we, we were trying to give people a view of what the reality is there, um, even at, you know, kind of a, you know, super indie micro budget level. So what about the house, how long was that actually, or the, the building that actually institute, that was a really cool looking building. Yeah, we were very glad to find the, that location and um, all the locations, actually, you know, we shot the whole thing. We were kind of talking before we, we, uh, before you joined um, and before you started recording that, how it was all shot in the Catskills in the Hudson Valley, which is, you know, a really interesting location. If you think about it from the history of spiritualists and all the sort of weird um, cults that have been up around here, religions that have started. Um, and also, of course, the fact that it's such a, a renowned vacation spot, right? The beauty of it has been something that people have been going to since the 50s, 60s. You know, this was like the hot spot in the heyday. And, you know, the natural beauty of it really informed, um, you know, the Institute's location, which was that, hey, you're coming to a paradise on earth, you know, all your needs are taken care of. It's a beautiful, lush landscape. You know, they're just sometimes you get a feeling that there's something off, perhaps. Mm -hmm. And so the Hudson Valley, the Catskill, this area, with you know, even the cave was not too far. So that really helped us as a micro budget to have these interesting locations, the lake, the cave, the building itself. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. And another um, great thing about the Catskills, we love the Catskills. We love um, coming up here, especially when we lived in the city. Um, but it can also be at times very creepy, especially if you're used to like living in New York City when it gets quiet, when it like, you know, there are moments. <laughs> the secluded nature, right? You know, that like can get like a little freaky. It gets like a lot darker than you're used to when you're living in New York, let's say, like, and you, you just kind of like forget, you know? So, um, I think, um, you did a great job, like playing that up too, you know, the kind of like double nature of it. The solitude. I would say so. Yeah. Yeah. It's basically where Mike was, uh, a kid. 
Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, for a few years. Yeah. I was going to say, the now the website that they go to for the Lands Institute, it's an actual website. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, you can go to the lands.institute right. You can go to lands.institute right now, and the Institute website is completely 100% in character, except for the, the trailer there. Mm-hmm. I'm glad oh, you that's cool. that. The facility exists, and, you know, we are, we, you could sign up for, you know, treatment if you'd like. And um, <laughs> our main website is institutemovie.com, but that was the website we used for the, the film. And I guess I made it a real live website because that's just seemed more fun to me. I don't know. Have you actually had people uh, sign yeah. up? Oh God, actually, that's sort of a tragic um, uh, kind of support for my original um, concept, which was we got, and I guess until very recently, we would continue to get uh, you know people that were interested. And I made the website as creepy as I possibly could. I mean, if any of you guys ever go to Lands.Institute, you will see. You know, he has a poem there he wrote. The way that he describes the poem is the creepiest. Thank you, thank you. I appreciate you mocking my work, Chelsea. Um, but, <laughs> but you know, uh, but even with all of that, some people were just so desperate, and the confidence, uh, you know, in perhaps the delivery of the Doctor Lands, that they would reach out and they would ask. And so, you know, we we were it was something a diff- delicate situation to deal with, and you know, we tried to kind of point them to the right locations and, you know, forward them to, to refer them to real, real searches. But yeah. Yeah. But it, it really kind of like proved, proved um, the thesis in a way. Do you know what I mean? That, um, yeah. you know, this is something that people really, really want and it's really hard. Yeah. It can be really hard. People are willing to do anything. Yeah. 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 Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. I've had um, I've had friends that have had to gone through, you know, had a tough time having children. So <laughs> me too. Yeah, you know, I know how how far people are willing to go sometimes. Yeah, yeah. It's tough to like, you know. I wanted to be very sensitive to that because you know I'm not a documentary filmmaker. You know, I'm a I'm a narrative filmmaker. I come up with stuff, you know, for my nightmares and and dreams. Right. So. How do you reconcile that? But that's without... something that we knew was going to resonate. We knew that was going to resonate with an audience. So, you know, from a producing standpoint, that was something we definitely wanted to make sure we leaned into because it's relatable. Yeah, in a in a way that, you know, was not exploitative, right? So I I I want to make sure that we heard the the voice of women characters, you know, the heard the voice of Chelsea was always my first filter. I have other friends, you know, they're they're on shows, you know, just getting the the, the female. And then, you know, I had a friend of mine who, a couple of friends of mine, actually, who are having difficulty with this situation. And, um, you know, I had them read it and, you know, they, they kind of were uh, like giving me the green light. You know, I'm not, as I said, I'm not a documentary filmmaker. Um, I do think that this is a, a topic that's not discussed enough. I think this mm-hmm. does lead to some potential, um, uh, you know, potentially predatory behavior on the form of physicians and, you know, even our um, experience with our second son was not very pleasant. You know, we feel like Chelsea, you know, you can describe it. Yeah. um, For our second son, um, well, for our first son, he was um, in the breech position. So, um, you know, like I had to have a C-section for him. 
Um, for the, our second son, I kind of feel like I was like bullied into having a C-section where it really wasn't necessary. Um, mm. But I, I don't know. Should I tell the long story or the short story? <laughs> I think. But basically, um, you know, when it, when a doctor tells you, you know, like your child could die, like there's just nothing you're you're willing to do, you know, except to have a C-section, which right. I think ultimately like. Um, the intention, you know. Yeah. And we don't really think that was necessary in this case. So, you know, this is not a, a medical drama or not, you know, this right. is not a, where we're trying to really grind that ax. I mean, this is an entertainment popcorn movie, sit back, you know, but, crack a beer, crack whatever you want. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, other than crack itself, I don't recommend crack itself. It's just <laughs> a lower paced movie. So crack everything else but crack and, you know, enjoy the ride. So, but some of the topics I like to touch upon, I think they, hopefully they can get us something in the back of the head, you know, make people right. start to think like, oh, you know what, this is something real. This is something that maybe we should discuss a little more. Yeah. And also like, um, I can also comment on um, Marie's state of mind, especially in the nightmare, because, you know, as exciting as pregnancy is and like all the like joy and anticipation and everything, like it's also quite terrifying at times, you know, especially like when you're um, a little more emotional, maybe, and like, you know, a little more fearful or, you know, like you, you can start getting really a lot of anxiety toward what the birth is going to be like or how your life is going to change or, you know, if something you know, might, you know, heaven forbid might be wrong with your, your child or like, you know, there's just, there's a lot of terrifying aspects to being pregnant. And there's also a lot of like crazy dreams. So, um, you know, like, I mean, and of course, like, you know, when you're pregnant, um, you know, the, the, um, positive and the joy always like outshines those things, but it's there, you know? So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it can be a touchy subject getting into the, the more difficult side of it, but yeah, I know for us, we had an emergency C-section because um, my daughter kept compressing her, her cord throughout the night. Um, mm. But I also know too, Florida, it is the, the common practice. Once you've done a C-section, you, you will always deliver C-section. They don't, they don't go back natural. Um, yeah. So I, I don't know. I don't think it's a state law. It's just the the common practice within the state amongst most. So. It is a common practice, but my kid's mother, she had one child before me. That that one was a C-section, and then the two we had together were natural. And I remember her doctor. Her doctor did try to bully her the whole. Oh, you should definitely do it, and she didn't want to because she said the recovery time for a C-section is like a solid eight weeks to three months, and she she didn't want to go through that again. Yeah, I, and I've I, also I, I heard, heard that, that doctors. I've heard doctors get to charge the insurance company a larger fee for a C-section than a natural birth. Yeah, absolutely, uh, and so it's only really it's like an hour of their time instead of like a natural birth. You know, like you just have to wait for it. You know, but you know, if they're on a schedule, like mm. I think they'd rather do that. Yeah, we just went dark, but I guess it is a horror slash thriller. <laughs> Um, hey, if we can't if we can't talk about the ending, we'll go dark this way. That's fine. Um, <laughs> I I hope I you know have lighter moments in it too. I tried to you know I'm a guy that you know doesn't believe in just kind of like this sort of mirthless yeah. you know self serious kind of uh, filmmaking. You know no. you have to. Yeah. As somebody 
who just just watched the film, I can say that yes, it's not all just dark and dreary and depressing. It's it's entertaining and uh, there's some some lighter moments yeah. in it. And uh, yeah, overall, it's pretty good. It's a good mix of everything. Thank you, Derek. The, Appreciate that. The, Derek, how did you feel about some of the side characters? Some of the side characters who were there. How did you feel about them? I I liked all the side characters. Actually, they were they were uh, they were interesting. They were a lot of fun. They added some 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 very interesting elements to the movie. I would say, <laughs> again, without trying without trying to spoil anything, trying to watch what I say. So, also, I, how did you feel about the uh, the romantic scenes in the actual film? See, I I was trying to stay away from that because I don't know how comfortable. <laughs> I mean, I know how comfortable I can be. I thought they were very very well handled. Yes, not one to watch with children. <laughs> no, definitely not safe for work. No. Well, you know, I, I other than that, I don't think that children should probably be watching it anyway because it's a, you know, kind of a horror thriller. But, you know, it's yes. great for adults. Now, with the scenes that are being brought up by Artemis, was everything <laughs> was there a fight to, to go those directions or was pretty much everyone on board with it? Yeah, because it's funny that you say that, because when I read some of the, the first draft of the script that I read, when I got to a certain scene, I said, ooh, I remember texting Hamza. I said, dude, this is going to that's going to be a tough sell. And he says, no, we're going to keep that scene. So uh, I imagine that's one of the scenes that you're speaking about. I'm going to let Hamza comment even further to explain it. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, you know, I have directed you know other films other shorts and uh, and written multiple plays and directed plays and the most intimate part of any of my film was a chaste kiss in one of my plays you know and in, in, in the in the theater so uh this was you know an order of magnitude greater you know the the, the treatment um causes the subjects to undergo psychological and psychosexual reactions and so it it needed a little bit more of a of a of a of a graphic sort of spicy nature, um, and I knew that this was more than I felt comfortable really kind of helming on my own. So what we did is we first of all in the casting process we you know people knew kind of what the story entailed, and then we uh, hired what's called an intimacy coordinator to work with the cast, you know because you know I'm the director. And so we don't want the cast to say, oh, yeah, we're, we're cool with this. We want to do this. And then um, and just not like not want to, you know, contradict me. Right. That, you know, sometimes you kind of as a, as a director, you, you take a call like a fatherly. But, you know, you 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 have a it, this is actually exactly antithetical to what I want to do. You know, my production company, Headless Film, is all about an egalitarian ethos. We're all in this as equals. But, you know, sometimes the cast themselves, they might feel pressure one way or the other. And I didn't want any of that. So we had the intimacy coordinator talk to them. I explained her what was called for in the script. She read the script and then they could anonymously tell her what they wanted to do, what they didn't want to do. You know, I can't really take much credit other than writing the story for what the kind of the, the specific actions that were taken, you know, that was all blocked out. I gave a couple of like shots, you know, like that I wanted like, you know, sort of a traditional um, intimate shots that, you know, I've had in my head. And then um, the intimacy coordinator wrote out the narratives, worked with them to describe everything, fit them into the story, make sure that they're comfortable with it, and then explain to me if there was anything that they were not. Um, you know, luckily enough or surprisingly enough, everybody was very game. And, uh, you know, I think you see that on screen. Um, so it wasn't really like a, 
uh, anything I can't take too much credit for. I wrote it, but the cast themselves kind of built it together with the intimacy coordinator into something that they wouldn't say enjoyed, but, you know, hopefully, you know, were comfortable with. So in other words, the, the, the cast, so the cast had more liberty on how those scenes were, were choreographed. Yeah. hundred percent. I mean, in, for the actual, like, uh, the the husband wife scenes I wasn't even on set um, you know I was hanging out with Chelsea you know I kind of wanted to just let them do it so they got the shots the DP you know it's a small close set and I guess technically the director can be in there or you know is sometimes in their room but I didn't really feel it was necessary you know to me it's like you've got the you got the cameraman and you've got the cast and that's it and you know the DP is you know he can examine things from the from the screen. Um, and from the monitor. And I didn't even really feel the need for that because I knew what the storyline was. I knew they had worked it out and uh, I kind of trusted them. And I thought that, you know, basically it was worth taking some time with Chelsea, you know, my wife who, you know, produced it and had to do with all of these things. You know, there's those intimate scenes, there's the examination scene, there's a lot. So I felt like, you know, this is not really what I'm into it for. It just, you know, this is about creating, uh, creating art. So those, that side of it can be handled by the characters themselves, what they want to do. And the cameramen, you know, my, my DP, my, my camera team was top notch. So they, they got it down. Yeah. I actually thought that was really sweet. And um, yeah. And we kind of, in a way, just allowed them to tell a little bit more of the story, how express themselves, how they wanted yeah, to. Physically express themselves, how they felt comfortable. And, you know, when I was, um, <clears throat> watching the dailies. And when we actually ended up editing it, you know, I was surprised by, uh, you know, how much footage we got and how, well, you know, you guys have seen it, you know, how comfortable everybody was. So it was, I think my decision was really supported and the team had it, the people had it, you could trust them and, uh, and it'll be a, it'll be a great, great, you know, intimate, yeah. passionate, um, and very realistic scene. I mean, when I saw the, the first couple scenes, I'm like, okay, this isn't, I mean, it, it fits what's going on with the film. It, it, it's not, exactly. it's not ex- exploitative just for the sake of being exploitative. No, it, it definitely, no, and it also felt like it, it, it helped move the story along. Yeah. And the intimacy did feel real and authentic. So and, I, think um, out, I think it came out. And it was supposed to be, um, you know, as the story goes on, like even more heightened, you know, like because of the um, regimen that they're, um, going through you know so um i think that works well like it, it ramping up you know <laughs> yeah 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 that definitely came across um ah. that way. so it was done very well i would smoothies do the body good <laughs> <laughs> we were thinking about offering those smoothies at our at our uh uh, <laughs> launch at a premiere. Um, you just said cake. We had cake, yeah. <laughs> favorite favorite part of the film for you guys? Favorite scene? Favorite moment? Ooh, that's a good question. I'll let you guys. I would say my favorite, favorite my favorite moment. Favorite moment in the actual film, or just favorite moment in the creation of the film? Either or, or both, or both. I would say my favorite moment in the creation of the film was probably the camaraderie that the cast and crew had, where we're all staying together at this uh this camp out in the middle of not quite nowhere, but just the fact that we're we're staying in this camp as adults, and it, it almost felt like something that would happen in middle school or high school. But just the way everybody's hanging out, you know, people around each other at night during the daytime, 
on the like when the day off that we had in the actual filming, just like the camaraderie, having everybody being together, that was something that I think I enjoyed the absolute most. My favorite scene in the actual film and the production and actual filming process, I would actually say was oh well, there's a scene towards the end of the film where a chase sequence happens. And I think that was my favorite mm-hmm. part of thing to actually shoot. But it was a, it was an overnight shoot where we, you know, we got together towards around six or seven o'clock at night. And of course, we had to get ready for the sun to go down. And then from there, we were literally filming until about five thirty, six o'clock in the morning wow. until when the sun came back up. So exactly. Well, no. it's, it's exterior night scene. So yep. that's what you got to do. But I would say that that was my, my those were my favorite scenes to actually shoot. All right. What about you, John? Um, I, I would uh, echo what Artemis said as far as um, beyond the film. Um, the com- even though I was only there for one day, it was the camaraderie uh, of the of everybody that was there. Uh, the production team, the crew, the 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 actors that were present, um, the ease that everybody had, even in the midst of this pandemic, um, uh, and the kindness that was that just it was like this just gentle air that filled the, uh, the, the brainstorm we were filming. Even though there was a lot of work that had to be done, there was a kindness uh, and a supportiveness. Uh, it was just very, very present. And I, I remember that uh, with just the, the most wonderful thoughts. Again, at a time when, you know, and coming up uh, that morning for filming and the city was as it had been for months, it was deserted. And then to come into that space and to that warmth and that kind of peace work with people that were there and ready to work was very special. Uh, as far as if I had to pick a, a favorite scene, to me, it's early in the film because it, it actually touched me very, very much. It's um, uh, when they are before they go to the Institute. Um, it's when uh, they're back in their apartment and they're, it, it, I'm going to try to say this without choking up because it, it really, I don't know why it, it, it just hit me so much, but they're sorting laundry and she holds up oh, yeah. a, a little uh, 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 onesie. Uh, a little baby outfit and it got mixed up in the, in the clothes and Danny, her husband, you know, says, I'm sorry. I, I, I didn't mean, he didn't mean for it to get caught up in there. And it's, it's just a moment, but they're, you know, they're all, they're both frozen in a way looking at it. And it's, it's very quiet and it's very gentle and very tender, but it just touches my heart very deeply. And I think at the core of, of, to me, the core of the story, the core of the film is that scene because that's where they are. That's, that's what they want. They, they want a child so much. And so that's why that scene touches me so much. Yeah. I mean, that, that was even visually, that was like, you know, just heartbreaking, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's like that, um, what was, what was that like shortest poem ever written? It was like baby shoes, not or shortest novel ever written baby shoes for sale, never used. Right. Like that's what it yeah. reminds me of. Yeah. <laughs> but on a happier note, yeah, I would have to say, uh, on a different note, like, I, have to, I have to agree with Artemis and John, like, um, you know, like the, the, um, you know, outside of shooting, you know, what we had together was like really one of the most enjoyable things about um, this 
movie shoot, you know, I mean, it really did feel like fun and, um, you know, like, you know, sometimes when you're on set, like you just can't wait for it to be over and for you to like be home or for you to be like, you know, just not with the people. And, you know, I always felt like I, I always look forward to like rapping and hanging out with everybody. Um, you know, even after like a very long, very challenging day with very little sleep, you know, so I think that was, that was great. And, and um, one moment that I really loved in the film, um, I got the chance to collaborate with our amazing um, composer, um, Paco Periago, who's um, a Spanish composer, but um, I found like a like a folk um, 1960s like folk song that um, I kind of shot his way, and he created music for the kind of the um, one part. You know, after the yoga scene, I don't want to give it away, but um, he composed the music um, with that inspiration, and um, oh, cool. that for me is like a highlight. Very cool. What about you, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I mean, it was a great, great experience. You know, overall. I mean, it's it's difficult to convey this. You know, Mike and Derek. I don't know if you guys are filmmakers or just film fans, but you know, it's been my dream to write a feature and and to to make movies since I was a kid. I mean, I think my first screenplay is when I was fourteen years old. So to finally get after all these years of like you know the shorts and the plays and the working my way up to to be able to actually produce my feature and get it made through all of the challenges of COVID and the funding and the, you know, budgets and the, you know, craziness. It was like, and then a year and a half in post, you know, trying to get this VFX done on our budget and and just making sure that we could, we could get the, 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 you know, the shots that we needed to, and, you know, the shooting it at 6.5 K and, you know, all our VFX being at that level, uh, um, it was just a lot. And it, it was, it was gratifying. And, you know, I'm glad um, I was, you know, I had this great supportive cast, great supportive production team, you know, the crew, everybody worked, you know, very, very hard on, on the film. Um, and, you know, I, I know that on a film, you know, the crew is usually not as vested in the film. Um, just because it's not their vision, you know, there a lot of times they're just, you know, artisans paid to come and do like a, a day's work. Right. Um, right. But <laughs> that's a baby. He, he he has some things to say about it as well. Uh, and uh, Chelsea was pregnant for a lot of this, actually, believe it or not. So that was another added complication to uh, to the film. Wow. Well, and we also had um, our first son like on set with us like the whole time. We called him the executive producer. <laughs> and yeah. we all it took turns like carrying him, passing him around, <laughs> depending on what we needed to do. <laughs> yeah, well, he was a COVID baby, so this was his first like experience with people, just you know, from nothing. Like he was born a, a week and a half or about a month and a half before COVID to then like, you know, 30, 40, 50 people like constantly running around. So he's just, but um, he handled it well. Yeah, he had a great time. And now he's like two and he's seen our trailer so many times that he like kind of like mocks it, which is really cute. <laughs> he memorizes it. He, he basically yells it out. Yeah. So it was the whole thing was, uh, was you know, it's, it's difficult to explain, but I'm just glad I was able to complete it. I'm, I'm very grateful for all the people that helped all the grateful for all the people that are still helping, you know, like still helping promote, get the word out, you know, um, it just were vested in the film and, and really, you know, assisting in, in creating this art and, and kind of pushing the art forward and, and, and 
in it for the long haul. So I'm just, my feeling is really more of gratitude uh, for all the people involved in the experience. And, and I can't really say one favorite experience. I mean, there's a couple of funny moments, but you know, the, the whole thing was, was just a dream. Um, how about this? I'm going to flip the tables and let you guys ask us a question. Oh boy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, tell us about your, like, uh, how you got into this and are you guys filmmakers? Are you writers? You know, give us a little bit of a background on this show, how, how it started and, you know, kind of what the format is, if you'd like. Uh, I'm curious. <laughs> well, I'm the, the old, the old hat on the show. Uh, it was me and one other gentleman back in the beginning, almost 10 years ago, that started the show. We just wanted to talk news and you know, bring people on for, for interviews, um, which we've had a large variety of guests. Um, but about six years ago, um, we got hooked up with October Coast and have had a lot of independent filmmakers on. And really, um, I can't speak for Derek, but for me, really brought in a greater appreciation for for the indie films that are out there. And I definitely start looking more. Yeah. I mean, I go, I, I go out and reach out for the, for the mainstream films, but I'm also reaching out and looking at more of the, the independent films as well that draw my attention. So, um, so having the partnership with them has definitely uh, increased my my palette for for independent films and independent projects, and makes me realize you know, because we've had quite a few from during that were made during the pandemic when you know y'all are still trying to survive during this whole thing when a lot of the the main mainstream studio stuff was like yeah, we're going to hold up until this calms down a little bit more. And yet we still need to be entertained. So, um, but Derek, you came on, what, about five, six years ago? Yeah, I think it was 2015, I want to say. Okay. Wow, seven years ago. Mm. Seven years ago. Okay. Yeah. And, and like I said, we'll we'll hit 10 years uh, this November with, with the show. So, I mean, we'll just talk a little bit of everything geek and, um, and cover cover a little bit of everything. Uh, me personally, I'm a audio engineer, been in the industry uh, since 85 uh, and currently work at a major theme park here in the central Florida region. Gatorland? Yeah, not that one. <laughs> it's major, but something maybe a little bit smaller. <laughs> so what about you, Derek? Um, I, I'm a bit of a writer, uh, unpublished. I haven't really, uh, published too much yet, but I do, I do some writing and stuff. Um, and as far as, well, I, I am also a bit of a movie buff. I do another podcast with, uh, one of my friends where we watch, uh, like B movies and stuff. We review one every week. And, uh, so we have a lot of fun with that. Um, and, uh, yeah, I just, I don't know. I just, when I started getting into podcasting, you know, I started listening of course, and then I just found it interesting. And, uh, I met up with Mike, I think we met over Twitter, didn't we? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I just, he, uh, he was losing a host. So I came on with another guy who's not with us anymore. And, uh, I just had so much fun with it that I now currently do four different podcasts, including this one. Yeah, we we do another one together uh, with the third host, and then uh, you you have fun. then you have two of your own. Mm-hmm. So now, do you guys primarily focus on genre films on all of these podcasts? Um, uh, on my on the one I do with my best friend, uh, Keepers of the Fringe. That one 
We mostly do genre films, yeah. Sometimes we branch out into other things, but a lot of horror, a lot of sci-fi, things like that. Here, uh, we've covered a little bit of everything. I mean, we've covered horror, we've covered uh, westerns, uh, which I think... A, 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 a romance film one, one time, too. Like a love story. Yep. <laughs> yep. What, um, what would you say are your top three films for both of you? Your top three? Overall? Yes. Uh, well, let's let's first say, I mean, so we do a Star Wars podcast, so obviously we love the yeah. Star Wars film. So let's let's take those out of the equation. Oh, um, outside of Star Wars, huh? <laughs> Does this mean because yeah, I do a Marvel podcast? Since I do a Marvel podcast, I got to take those out of the equation too. Uh, uh, that's up to you, but okay. <laughs> I would say my three favorite films. One would definitely be The Princess Bride. Um, I love that film. Um, and then I would say... That's a tough question. It is. Uh, I will say... Uh, my two other ones probably would be uh, Jaws. I love Jaws. And, and uh, I'm going to go sentimental and go with uh, E.T. Okay. For I was always believe it or not, I've watched that one all the way through. Really? <laughs> yeah, I've never seen ET all the way straight through. Oh, well. Some bits and pieces of it. For for me, I have to go four, not three. Uh, and I apologize, Artemis, but um, let's arrow Groundhog Day, partially because it it takes place on the day that I was hired by my current employer. It's a film I watch every year on my work anniversary. Wow. I figure out a way of watching it. Um, second, uh, again, like Derek, Princess Bride. Um, third is Rocky Horror Picture Show. Uh, that goes back to the high school roots, the middle school, high school roots. And then um, the, the last one is this uh, another great little independent project um, by by independent filmmaker out of California. Um he did this movie called Howard the Duck. <laughs> ah, yes. <laughs> I too enjoyed Howard the Duck. I should have known you about that movie. Love that movie. I should have known you that is the first Marvel film. It technically is the first Marvel film. I, on the big screen. Uh, I mean, there yes. were there were a couple on the small screen, but it was the first one on the big screen. And thankfully, it wasn't the last somehow. Anyway. This is true. <laughs> I don't know why, but for some reason, I'm also remembering that I like Jurassic Park a lot. I just thought of that for some reason. I'm not sure love, why. Love Jurassic Park. I too enjoy Jurassic Park. It's <laughs> probably definitely in my top five. <laughs> it, I, I like that whole franchise. Uh, Jurassic Park, Jurassic World. Uh, the reboot was a great reboot, but it's still a continuation of the original series. I mean, you don't have to watch Jurassic, Jurassic Park 3 to watch um, in order to watch Jurassic World. But it... Yeah. But it sure helps. That's an interesting question, actually. As filmmakers and such, how do you guys feel about reboots and such reimaginings and all that? I don't mind them as long as they actually change it and make some of it original. If you're just going to remake the same film with updated effects and a different cast, there's no point in doing that. But I mean, I feel like you have to take some of the characters and some of the story and do something a little bit different, you know, make some part of it original. Right. Uh, John, do you want to comment on that? I know you have to... um... You know, you have a, a sleep schedule. John's like a world-class tenor, so. Um, but yeah. you want to answer one last question? Uh, how you feel about reboots? 
about reboots okay. about films yeah yeah it's like you know basically like not a sequel but like a kind of a reimagining of it so recent one is like there was ghostbusters from back in the day and then they remade it and then they remade it again how do you feel about those well that's a you know Hans, that's actually i'm glad you brought that up that's a good example um like you mentioned, uh, I, I guess you're meaning like when they did uh, Ghostbusters and they did it with an all-female cast. Yeah. Um, and I've actually uh, talked about this with uh, people before. Uh, the actors who were used and uh, were all, I mean, they're some of the best uh, comics out there. They have female comics, actors. Uh, I, I love their work very, very much. I felt, I, I don't say this because they're women. I just feel like because of how wonderful they are as actors, they deserved a better script. Instead, what they were given was Ghostbusters just set in the present day with a couple of little tweaks to it. Um, And Mm. I thought, you know, I mean, you've got four absolutely fantastic comics here that could have handled a completely new storyline and that would have propelled uh, the Ghostbusters – franchise if you will in a whole new direction yeah and you know I'm, i know there was a lot of hate if you will that came out of it about using women i didn't follow that at all i when i read no. the women that were hired i thought brilliant brilliant what a great team but then when i saw what it was i thought what a waste because they deserved better because I, of I agree. Who, who they are and what they bring to the table i agree but then that said, when you look at Ghostbusters Afterlife, or if you want to call it Ghostbusters 3, the one that most recently came out, which was a continuation of the franchise, I loved it. I really did. I I mean, it took right. so long for it to actually come out because of the pandemic. Um, right. and I'm telling you, I had been waiting for it. You know, originally, I think it was coming going to come out in uh, the summer of 20. And then it was going to be the fall of 20 and yada, yada, yada. And then finally, when it came out, um, I, I just enjoyed it so much. I felt like it, and the way that they honored, uh, is it Harold Ramis? Harold Ramis, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. it, you know, again, without giving any spoilers to people who haven't yet seen it, um, it was handled just beautifully. Yeah. And the way that they incorporated yeah. the original cast members in their roles as, you know, at different times without giving anything away. Um, was just so well done. I mean, they, you know, I think the first one that they used was uh, Annie Potts, and yeah. um, uh, it, it was. And the but the way they, I mean, you you recognized her immediately by her voice. But you know, now she's gray, the hair's gray, she's older, and we get even in the brief scene she was in, we understand what we had seen in the setup of the very first film, her connection to Harold Ramis, yeah. and what happened since in all these years. It was just, I, I found there were times, even though it was a comedy and and incredibly well done, there were times I kept getting choked up because you, Me too. for those of us, you know, that are old enough to remember sitting in the, in the movie theater and watching the original and here all these years later, these folks are, are still here and the son of the director, you know, uh, yep. have respecting the love that all of us have yep. for the yes. original films. And what he brought to this. And so in that regard, I applaud, if you want to call it a reboot, um, what they did. And had that kind of expertise and excellence and integrity been given to um, the version with the four women 
I think it would have been a terrific film that would have Mm. soared at the box Mm. office, soared with the critics, and soared with the public, and been a credit to those women and to their artistry. Right. I I agree. If if the female film was given an original story instead of a rehash of the original script, I I think the franchise would have been fine. I I think it would have been great to see how they potentially tie that in with the the original series, even with this, you know, coming in being a tribute to Harold Ramis. If I may, I'll just add one other thing. In the the all-female version, if you'll recall, they used, I don't know if they used all of them, but they used a good deal of the uh, original Ghostbuster cast, but they were not Mm -hmm. who they had been. They were other characters. And again, I thought, what a waste. You know, we know who these people are, so you're trying to pass them off as, you know, like a a knockoff. And there's yet another excellence about Afterlife. They came back as who who we know them to be, and it's okay that it's, you know, whatever, 35 years later, and they're older and heavier and grayer and balder or whatever. So we all are. Well, you know? it, it's their, it it's their last hurrah with, with Harold Ramis as their way of honoring Harold Ramis and then kind of doing like with Jurassic Park, with Jurassic World, uh, keeping the Ghostbusters franchise alive, but you know, spurring it on to a, a new generation to, to take it over. Mm. As we're and there you go. Because they were able to also then have some younger actors and you know a, a younger component which also drew in a, a younger audience that could now learn about yep. the storyline and perhaps if this is in the cards there can be other sequels or other components of the Ghostbusters franchise going forward for younger and younger audiences in the future yeah. and that's the best part I think that can come when you reboot I, I agree yes exactly uh, I want to thank you guys, everyone, for for joining us. Uh, Hamza, Artemis, Chelsea, John, uh, thank you guys um, for for putting out such a great film called The Institute, which is available on various streaming platforms currently. So check it out. Um, So, again, thank you for for joining us. Thank you for having us, Mike. Thank you. For such a great night. And um, on that note, we're just going to hope that we didn't leave you guys asking want to know more. So, um, the bad crowd you've been hanging out with is a science fiction club? This has been a Weeby Geeks production.